Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer. This is Touch Em All, episode 363 on our network right now. we got a special one for you today. Uh, but before we bring on our guest and introduce him and bring Bob on, just want to thank a couple groups of people. First, our, our subscribers. A year ago today, we were at 3,000 subscribers. We just touched 60,000 this morning, so I want to thank you guys for your support. Make sure you give Bob five stars at the end of this show. However you stream it, we're on six different networks now, including iHeartRadio. So however you stream it, five stars, write some great comments because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. Into our first partner in advertising, Blackout Coffee. At checkout, if you put David, all capital letters, with the number 20 off of it, after it, I'm sorry, you'll get 20% off your purchase. Doesn't matter how much coffee you buy. And in perpetuity, you'll get 15% off. So we love friends that love coffee, love to give us discounts and love baseball. And into our, probably our most loyal listener and the three-time guest, Ted Kubiak, former shortstop for the Oakland A's. Uh, I want to recommend a stocking stuffer for, for, for parents out there for kids with baseball. Ted's book, Old School, Evolution of the American Pastime. Uh, it's a great read for kids and for adults. And then if you want to teach your kid how to field a ground ball, how to field a ground ball, it's the ultimate training guide for infielders. It's a deep dive and be looking out for Ted's book in January. He's got a children's book coming out. So Ted Kubiak's listening. I wanted to make sure I pumped that book. Uh, but with that, uh, want to uh, bring uh, introduce Bob back to his show. Bob, welcome back, and I'll uh, let me introduce our special guest today. Yeah, do it because you have history with him. But uh, it's great to talk to him again. Yeah, I know you guys uh, were together in the past uh, with the Red Sox, and this guest needs no introduction on this network. Uh, is a is a podcaster with us. Has done his show She Gone with us, and is the leader of the She Gone Nation, and is uh, all over social media trying to right the wrongs of baseball right now, and is out there been out there on the speaking circuit. We want to hear about that for, for a good six months right now. And we are going to reintroduce his show uh, to the network next week. Uh, it's going to be his first show back right before the Christmas holiday. So we're glad to have him back. Jeff Fry, welcome back to the show and welcome back to the network you helped build. Oh, thanks a lot, Dave. I appreciate it, man. I miss you guys. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to get yeah. to talk to Shafe. And I Shafe and I had a, you know, 20 some years ago with the Red Sox, we used to talk quite a bit and I've you know I know his baseball knowledge is is second to none and a guy who spent his whole life in the game and I'm really looking forward to the show today yeah well, well when I, I you guys sent me the same text response back I said hey, hey uh, Bob you want me to see if I can get Jeff to come on the show and then I'd text you the same thing you, you want to come on the show with shape I got the same text back I couldn't tell if there was something wrong on my phone both of them said hell yeah so <laughs> but uh, Jeff was like the original old school player I mean he's scrappy he got most out of his talent. He's a great hitter. I think a 290 lifetime. Um, but I first met Jeff in person with the Red Sox. I was director of player development. I also like the field coordinator. So I was in spring training with Jimmy, Jimmy Williams, who's to me a great teacher and a great manager. And I remember Jeff, uh, I think it was the first and third defense they were doing. And he played second. He took the throw from the catcher. The runner on third took off for home. So instead of throwing it, Maybe they run and run and go back to first, uh, third or go home. He ran right at him, which you're supposed to do. He ran at him, kind of angling him back to third. And the runner did something, gave him some kind of a deke or something. And Jeff twisted his knee and he lost the whole season. He ran that right to foul line at third base. Remember that, Jeff? Oh, I'll never forget it, Shafe. It was Darren Bragg. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was running across the field and like we we're taught to, to angle him, make him go back to third base. And right when I started to cut, Braggy spun around backwards and did this funky move, and I went to cut, and my knee buckled, and and I went down immediately. I knew uh, Braggy screamed because it, it sounded like chicken bones breaking, wow. uh, and I was down for the count, and, and Braggy in Braggy fashion was like, "Ooh, you know, I didn't know you. You never seen the double move, the double <laughs> move, you know, Braggy being from <laughs> Pennsylvania, and it's like Mo is so good, Braggy." Told everybody to quit messing around. I was out for the year, 
Yeah, it was tough because I just signed a three-year contract, and I was really excited. Yeah, well, I, I know Jimmy said, "Now what the hell do we do?" Because Nomar was up and coming, and you know, was a shortstop of the future. Valentin was playing shortstop, and uh, you know, Nomar. Do you want to mix Nomar in there and probably move Valentin somewhere? So, uh, you know, he didn't know if he could play short or, not, or second. Because a lot of shortstops have a long arm and they can't play second because they get killed at second base. Now nowadays anybody can play second base because there's no more skill in making a double play. So as it turned out, they put Valentin at second because uh, Nering was playing third, if I was remember right. And uh, and Valentin wasn't real happy. As a matter of fact, um, you know, he told me he said, "Shave, I'll play anywhere if they give me another year of my contract." So I told Duquette that. He said, oh, no, we're not going to give him any more years in contract. I said, why not? The guy's a hell of a player. He's a clutch hitter. And, he, you know, see if he can play second. He probably can. If not, you know, we can figure something out. Oh, no, I'm not going to play. He says he always hurt and all that stuff. I said, well, he's hurt, but he plays all the time, even though he's hurt. Mm-hmm. But that was Dan Duquette, whatever, you know, beginning of my end with him. Yeah, and Val, I mean, Val was a gamer. And Val, oh, yeah, he, he was. Yeah. He wasn't really a long-arm guy either. He kind of threw from his ear. And uh, I remember the next year <laughs> when, when Jimmy – Timmy, Timmy Naring, we all love Timmy. Um, Timmy got hurt, and they moved me to third and Val to second. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Val is built for third, and I struggled at third for a while. And i never forget, they asked me, you know, how would you rate your defense at third base? And I said, somewhere between Ed Sprague and Tony Fernandez. <laughs> and neither one of them was good at third. And eventually they wised up and put me back at second and Val at third, and we did all right. Yeah. Well, you know, I played short mostly, a little bit of second, and I took ground balls at third off the bat during batting practice in case I had to play there. But I never played there in a game, but third base to me was tough. I mean, the ball came off a different angle, of course. I mean, if you could if you could use your backhand to your right, you could probably play third pretty well. But, uh, you know, to me, to play in the middle was a lot easier in a lot of ways. You see the ball off the bat sooner and everything, and it's coming at you to your left or right. But at third, it's hooking away from you, and it was a tough position to play, but I don't, maybe I could adapt it if I had to, but I didn't really want to. I hated it, Shafe. I hated it. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I, the thing I did, it was a couple things. It was, I used the biggest glove. I could use my, I used my outfield glove at third base. I figured <laughs> first thing I got to do is catch it, but you can't really read the hop. You're almost like a goaltender. And yeah. so I can catch the ball. I'm going to use a bigger glove, not my middle <laughs> infield glove. It's pretty small. And, but the thing that messed me up was as soon as I caught the ball, I'd look up and I'd look at the runner. And it always looked like he was too far down the line. I would rush my throw. So I finally, I played most, uh, I played the third base was with the Blue Jays when they traded Tony Batista. But, yeah. and I still didn't like it, but I finally stopped looking at the runner and just focused on, on, um, you know, picking up the first base. And I did all right over there. Yeah. I didn't like well, there's a few tricks you got to learn, but you know, usually when you look at the runner, the ball fades down the line. You know, you don't finish your throw because you look at the runner and it'll fade down the line. And when I coach the infielders, I see a guy throwing the ball down the line, you know, tailing away from the first baseman. I say, you know, you're watching the runner. He says, yeah, you're right. So don't watch the first baseman. It's all to him. Yeah, and I would aim left of the first baseman a little bit because my ball tailed anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, Shafe, when you first saw Jeff and you knew of him before he came to the Red Sox, what about his game? Because first thing you said to me was he's a gamer. He could hit. I mean, right off the bat, you're you're reading off probably a, a mental uh, scouting report that you would have done as a director of player development. But what what uh, what about Jeff's game made him a gamer? Made him a scrappy player, that old school kind of player. Well, he did little things. I mean, he's a good two strike hitter. He battled up there. He didn't have a lot of home run power, but he put the ball in play. He used the whole field. He could bunt. He could hit and run. You could get signs, which is a big thing. Although not many teams use signs anymore because nobody does anything. But uh, he just did little things to help the team win. And he played good defense at second base. So, I mean, he played better than his ability, put it that way. And those are guys, the overachievers, are what makes teams win. Now, you can't have nine guys that have to overachieve. you got to have someone have great skills and talent. But Jeff had good enough skill and talent, but his makeup, his toughness, made him better than what his skills and talent was. Yeah. No offense, Jeff, but that's what I saw. That's right. the greatest comp you can give. Je- Jeff, you're out there speaking now, and you just, you just got inducted into the Hall of Fame for your your college, so congratulations on that. I think you went in with your, your former coach. Uh, where was this Where was this impressed upon you? Um, you know, who, who had an influence on developing that kind of player? And, 
Is, are those the messages you're out there in addition to the skill passing on to the kids? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I, I don't really know, Dave. It's just kind of the way I learned to play baseball. It just, you know, as a kid, I watched baseball. Every time there was a game on TV, I watched it. I'd watch, you know, this is in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was watching the Giants and the, and the Big Red Machine and just watching how these guys played. Pete Rose, you know, was always hustling. And I just wanted to. You know, knowing that I was a smaller guy, and it, I knew I had to do everything right. I, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have, I couldn't make up with uh, doing something wrong on the field by hitting a three-run homer. I had to do, try and do everything right all the time, try and be in the right position. Like Shave said, get the signs, hit and run, bunt. You know, I took pride in doing all those things correctly and, and knew that I had to do those type of things to help my team win games. Uh, to stay in the big leagues. And so I just practiced on that, that the finer arts of the game all the time. Yeah. Well, I think it's not so much a coach that helps you. I think this individual that says what he has to do to make himself better. I know when I came out of high school, I wasn't recruited by UConn, and I thought I could play there. I had a scholarship at a smaller school, but I knew a couple of guys in my high school that went to UConn and played and did well. So I said, I can walk on and make that team. Now, I was a catcher in Legion and in a little bit of high school. And I played uh, second base basically because I was little. I was about 5'10", 145 pounds. But I was determined to do what I had to do to make the team. So in those days, the freshmen had to play in a freshman team. They couldn't play in a varsity. So I made a freshman team. I played second base. They had a big guy playing catcher. This guy, Ed Carroll. I said, well, I can't compete against him. He's like you know four inches taller than me and probably 30 pounds heavier. So I'm not going to compete against him. So I played second, <clears throat> did okay freshman year, went back sophomore year. I just wanted to make the team. So we go down south, and uh, the shortstop at the time was my buddy from high school. He wasn't doing too well. And the coach came to me, and he said, you ever played short? I said, yeah, I played short before. I was kind of lying a little bit, but I played a few games of short. He said, well, let me see what happens. So he hit me some ground balls, and I had quick hands. I didn't have a great arm, but I could get rid of the ball quick, and I had pretty good range. I was pretty quick. And uh, – he said, you're a shortstop. So for three years, I played shortstop at UConn. I was the only guy that played three consecutive years because he'd get tired of the guy after a year or two and get somebody else in there, which he got tired of the guy that was there before, and that's why I became a shortstop. But I was determined, you know, to be a shortstop and be good. And it was just my determination. But, again, I had to make sure I knew what to do. I knew where to play. I knew the situations. I couldn't screw up defensively. I mean, I made a few errors like everybody, but – at least I knew what I was trying to do, and I could do it. I could. I had some power in those days, so I hit a few home runs. But, uh, you know, I did little things. I could bunt. In those days, we bunted, sacrificed bunted. I could bunt for a hit. And I just kept doing stuff to make myself better, and, and I ended up signing with the Cardinals. But, you know, I just felt that I was self-made. I didn't have great talent, but I knew I figured I got to be a smart player, which I was, I guess, and then I became a coach, and, you don't learn about the game till you have to teach it. And when I started teaching and coaching, that's when you really learn about the game. I mean, I wish I knew some of the stuff I learned from coaching that I, when I was playing, but that's how the game is. But you can figure things out. I mean, you're like a self-made player. I, I was a self-made player, and you appreciate it more. Yeah, and, you know, we wanted it. We wanted it, Chase. And, and yeah. a lot of times uh, a lot of the guys who are more gifted don't, don't want it as bad as we – as we did and and coming up to the minor leagues especially there were so many guys that I played with that were more talented than me and they just they couldn't either figure it out mentally or or maybe it was too much pressure on them but they didn't seem to want it as bad as I did and you know there's plenty of times where I'd see somebody coming that I knew was more gifted than me and in the long run I'd end up beating them out because I just keep doing my thing and keep grinding away uh, and, and trying to get better and, and not make the mental mistakes. You know, as a coach, that you know, they have an E on that scoreboard for a reason because you're going to make physical mistakes, but you right. got to limit the mental mistakes, and especially the guys like us, we can't make mental mistakes. Well, I think, too, a good player is a guy that does something consistently. They use their talent, whatever talent they have, but they do it consistently. The guy that, you know, strikes out with a base loader, the guy that doesn't, you know, He's like, one day he's awesome, next day he's terrible. It's tough to win with guys like that. But I was almost the same guy every time. You were the same guy. I remember watching you play. I mean, with two strikes, you 
you know, you get a little closer to play, choked up, and you put the ball in play. Where some guys swing the same way with two strikes, they do three and zero or two and zero. And especially this day and age, I mean, guys are swinging for home runs at launch angle. How's that working out? You know. <laughs> yeah, it's tough to watch, Shafe, and you know, I'm all over social media talking about that. I can't fathom that the analytics people have convinced the players that it's okay to strike out because you know you just keep with that a swing and we don't want you to put the ball in play because you're going to be out anyway we'd rather you try and keep that a swing and hit the ball hard in the air and it's not that easy it's not that easy and you know i don't know if any of these analytics guys have ever actually played the game at a high level and they don't know how difficult the game is but the players do and so i'm really surprised that the players are listening to these guys and just going up there and swinging for the fences. I guess they're allowed. Yeah, well, I know like, you know, when I, I scouted several years in between coaching stints and everything, and uh, people say, well, what are you looking for? I say, I'm looking for a guy to help a team win. I look, everybody looks at stats. We look at stats all the time, batting average, RBIs, which they don't mean too much anymore, supposedly, but it's still what the game's all about. But I want a guy that can do little things, help a team win. You know, the old days break up double play. Even now, beat a throw to second base, get a good secondary lead, get a good jump on a, on the ball, on a batter ball. But there's little things you can a guy can do to help you win. And, you know, the guy that can score from first on a long single or double, for sure, you know, two-base progression, you have to be real fast. I mean, you might not be a stolen base guy, but the two-base progression, like go from first to third, go from second to home. It starts with a good secondary lead, and anticipation, ball off the bat, and so forth. But you watch that kind of stuff, and that's what what wins games. It's not the guy sits back and hits a three run home run every two weeks. So they're nice, but give me the guy that puts the ball in play. And like I always said, you know, strikeout never scored a guy from third, never took a bad hop. But the teams that win have a lot of guys put the ball in play and keep the game moving. Well, look at the two teams that made it uh, to the World Series this year, especially Arizona. Yeah, they're all about that stuff. They led the league in. I think sacrifice bunts either first or second. And I know that's not used anymore in the game, but why is it that when we get to the playoffs that people start playing small ball? And, and you know, I don't really call I don't really like small ball. I call it baseball. They're actually playing baseball where you're going to move a runner. You're going to get a run by hitting the ground ball up the middle. You're going to get a sack fly. And those runs by the end of, you know, you do that right, you know, as many innings as you can. And by the end of the game, you got five or six runs, and the team to score five or six runs tend to win most of the games. Yeah. Well, my theory about that is uh, too often during the season, the players play for stats because the people evaluate them don't know what they're looking at. So the big thing is exit velocity. Well, exit velocity is good. But the same token, a guy that tries to get exit velocity with two strikes, he strikes out. Yep. So now it's zero exit velocity. But during the season, you know, they want to get home runs. And on second base, nobody out. They try to drive them in rather than just hit the ball to the right side. And I remember I, I learned a long time ago, if you play the game right, the stats will take care of themselves. Yep. So if you hit the ball to the right side, a lot of times we base hit and you score the guy. Otherwise, it's a productive at-bat and gets the guy to third on and out. And that's what it's all about, productive at-bats. Let the next guy drive him in. But it's, I don't know. I just think that the way the game is evaluated now by some of these nerds and some of these guys who – don't know what the game is all about and what a guy can do to help you win. They just analyze it and they evaluate a guy according to their so-called their stats, not stats that win games. Yeah. And you know, it, as a hitter, when I'm hitting at the top of the lineup, you know, I, I knew that my job was when I got up with nobody out and a runner on second and Will Clark or Palmero, whoever was hitting behind me, Lomar, <laughs> I didn't. I would feel bad walking back to the dugout if I didn't move that guy to third base for the on deck because he knows all he's got to do now is hit a hard ground ball up the middle and we got to run and that helps our team. And so I, I took it personal, you know, that I let down my teammate by not doing my job that at bat. So if I had a sack bunt and my job was to get the guy over and I didn't get it done, I didn't just feel bad because I'm all for one. I let down my team and my teammate, and I just don't see that anymore. It, it seems to me like you're you're right that everybody's just playing for the stats. So at the end of the year, they can go in and you know ask for a little bit more money, and that's you know for teams that are that are losing consistently, it can't be you know funny. The winning is fun, not just making money. How about we win and we all make money? 
Yeah. Well, like I said, you played again the right way. The stats take care of themselves and the stats will get you money. But again, you play to win the game. What do I have to do to help win the game? Not about how many stats you create or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's just, I don't know, it's selfish baseball. You can't really blame some guys because that's, they know how to evaluate it. And they're evaluated wrong as far as, you know, the nature of the game and how the game should be played. Yeah. And I think that starts at the youth level now, right? It's all about the individual, uh, all of these showcases and all this stuff. It's all about the, you know, the exit velocities and how hard they can throw it across the infield. And then these kids get to college and the coach goes, this kid can't play. Yeah. He showed his <laughs> pony, you know, and then now he's in the transfer portal. And that's another story. You're right. They, they do reinforce that showcase pony stuff. Even in between the games, they have those events. They have an exit velocity mm-hmm. event. They have a launch angle event. They now have uh, throwing velocity events from position for position players. And we see these kids just like they do on YouTube. They're, they're uh, taking four to six crow hops, cranking their body up in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that should never be cranked up and trying to throw a ball through a, like a plastic screen for a time. And, uh, yeah, you're out there seeing it on the ground. I see it a little bit with my kids out there and it's, it's really, uh, the, the youth game's in a bad place right now. It is, it is. And it's, you know, I do a lot of stuff on social media about perfect game and PBR and all the showcases. And, you know, thinking about this yesterday is, you know, major league baseball season goes, you know, spring training starts in middle of February. Um, you know, six weeks of spring training. The season usually starts around first of April, and it ends now. It used to end in October, but now it ends in November. And I just saw yesterday where Perfect Games having a some World Series event or something in Vegas at the end of December. Yeah, like, these poor kids are playing. You know, twelve year olds are playing when thirty year olds are home resting. Oh, yeah. And it's no wonder all these kids are getting hurt. They never take a break, and that's they've always said about. What I heard about baseball is a game of attrition. You play it enough, you're going to get hurt. And these poor kids are playing year-round, and it's no wonder they're all getting hurt. We do we do Memorial Day to Labor Day, and then we, then we shut them down. We let them play other sports. And you you were – you and that's a, I enjoy that story that you tell. You were a multi-sport athlete. In fact, you got recruited for basketball first, correct, going to college? Yeah. yeah I mean, I played uh, three sports in high school, football, basketball, <laughs> and baseball. I didn't want to play football. I hated it, but – the coaches wanted me to play, so toughened you up a little bit. But, uh, yeah, basketball was my love in high school, and I really didn't get recruited much to play baseball, I guess because of my size. When I was a senior, I was 5'5", 135 pounds. And most people, my junior college coach the other day, uh, when we did the, the Hall of Fame deal, talked about he was a referee, and he refereed high school basketball. And he would referee my games, and he saw me on the court, and he says, here's this little cocky kid from California. Looks like he weighs 120 pounds. He goes, that's why I didn't recruit him. He goes, but I knew he was tough. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting an opportunity to go play junior college basketball, and then all of a sudden he saw me during the summer playing Legion and asked me to come play baseball and basketball at Carl Albert, and that's, that's actually how I got to junior college. Oh, see, what you guys said, both of you, about being an athlete. I mean, I think it's very important you play three sports. I played soccer at first, and then I played football my senior year, which is a big mistake. But I transferred high schools, and uh, I played baseball my junior year. And baseball coach is a football coach. He talked me out into going out for football as a senior. So I was a backup quarterback, and uh, I was telling my buddies I threw two touchdown passes one game. We lost 40 nothing. They were both intercepted, <laughs> ran the other way. But I was scared every day I was out there because I was little. And I didn't know, you know, guys going to knock me on my butt and everything. And I was scared. But anyway, the, the three sports, basketball to me helped you for uh, baseball. Soccer helped me for basketball. And those are lifetime skills that you learn. But, you know, by playing soccer, I get quicker. I uh, use my feet better, which you need for baseball. And basketball was a little bit of everything. And then baseball is my sport. But by playing those other two sports, it got me better for baseball. And I had to work a little bit harder maybe to make the team and be, you know, make some playing time in those two sports because I wasn't that good at it. Whereas baseball is better, but you learn the discipline, so to speak, that what you got to do to get good enough to play a lot. And nowadays, these guys, they, they specialize in one sport. I, mean, I taught high school before I got into professional baseball and a basketball coach wanted to 
you know, the baseball players play basketball in the summertime instead of baseball. And I used to fight that all the time. And, uh, you know, football players, they want to lift weights all winter instead of playing basketball or, or sometimes, you know, some guys played hockey and everything. But to me, you got to be a multi-sport athlete. That's why guys in the cold weather, to me, you don't know what you're going to get until you sign them until they play pro ball. So high, guys, people in Florida, which, you know, in California, the weather's good. They can play baseball year-round. Scouts, you know, they flock toward them and everything. But you give me a guy from New England or a cold weather area that's an athlete, and a good scouts will watch basketball games. They'll watch football games or, you know, soccer games. And they, they see how good athlete the guy is, and they can project how good he might be in baseball once he plays baseball year-round. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was the same as you, Shay. I dreaded football. I Like the whole day when I was in high school during football season, I just did not look forward to going to practice because I knew it was going to hurt. When I had a guy <laughs> who weighed 200 pounds and I weighed 130, it hurt. And I hated I it. When I didn't do it right, the coach yelled at me. It's like, what What part of this is fun? But I did it so I could be part of a team. And you know, I do believe it, it taught me some toughness. But I can tell you that I hated it, man. I dreaded going to practice. I know. <laughs> I broke my finger about the third week of the season. And I was out for two weeks. And uh, I could still throw football. It was like the inside of my hand almost. But I probably saved my life for not playing, be able to play for two weeks. But uh, yeah, I was scared every day I went out there. I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to get carried off the field today. But hey, it was a good experience, but it was a bad experience in a lot of ways. I should have kept playing soccer. I was decent at that. And, uh, but whatever. But you live and learn. And uh, yeah, you want a big shot. And all the girls go to the cheer, you know, cheerleaders and stuff, go to football games. They don't go to soccer. So you figure you're a football player, you're a big shot. So. I was a big shot, but I was scared every minute. Of the day. Yeah, down to it right now, Bob. It was about girls. It was about toughness. Scared. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, uh, yeah, if you it's talking about toughness, you you shared a story with me before about um, kind of the process when you got signed, and if that doesn't exude toughness, I don't know what does, but um, maybe a little silliness too, with uh, with how it happened. But would you mind sharing that story? Yeah, sure. I uh, well, I, I'd originally gone to a Rangers tryout camp. And uh, did pretty well, so they invited me to Arlington, Arlington Stadium for a, you know, a, a more exclusive camp. And right before that camp, I had got, I went out on Lake Texoma, went water skiing, and the rope snapped out of my hand, and my hand hit the end of the ski and busted my my left hand, my glove hand, busted my middle finger and ring finger wide open, and uh, I had to get stitches through my ring finger and the. Uh, the tip of my finger and my fingernail and then show up at this Rangers tryout and pretend uh, that I wasn't hurt. And I, I ran the 60 uh, with batting glove on and then trying to hide it. Then I took ground balls and Oscar Acosta was one of the coaches and man, he was hitting me some rockets and hurt every, every ground ball I caught. It was excruciating pain and I got in the cage to hit and, First swing, the bat flew out of my hand and hit the top of the cage. And they called me out of the cage and asked what was wrong. And I take off my batting glove, and there's the rubber glove that I had stolen from the doctor's office. And I take that off, and there's some gauze pads wrapped around my fingers. And I take those off, and they can see that I still have the stitches through my fingernail on the tip of my finger. And they asked me what had happened. I explained to them that, you know, that I had a water skiing accident. And they said, well, you. Obviously, you want to play pretty bad. Go home and get your hand ready. We're going to draft you. And they end up drafting me in the 30th round. And I end up playing for 15 years. That's a pretty good story. That's uh, So load management was not in your vocabulary. No, man. I was, you know, <laughs> and, and I didn't, this is was crazy when I went back to my junior college. I, I never realized this. You know, I moved from California when I was 16 to a, a town of 2000 people and it's just a little two way school. And, you know, it was, everybody played sports, but nobody had really done anything in sports um, before I'd gotten there. I think it maybe one kid went, you know, to OU to, to kick or something like that, but really nobody had ever gone on um, and done much in definitely not in pro ball, but not even really in college. And while I was at my junior college hall of fame thing, there was a, the president of the college, uh, Dave Faulkner, was from that same town, and he was younger than me. And um, he said that when he was a kid, their coach used to 
get the boys to catch turtles during the summer. And that during the summer, he would take those turtles and sell them um, to the local pet store owner to raise money so that they could buy tickets to the Texas Rangers game so they could go to Arlington, Texas to see their hero, Jeff Fry, play baseball. Oh, that's and he, awesome. And he, it was like blew me away. I'm getting chills right now saying it, but he said that you know, they didn't really have a hero in that town. When they went to the Little League field and jumped the fence to play baseball, and they were trying, they were imitating their hero, Jeff Fry. And he said that I was their folk hero. And I was, I mean, I couldn't even hardly give my speech after hearing this. That's, you know, that he goes, you gave every kid in southeastern, southeastern Oklahoma, um, you know, you, you made it. And you gave us a chance to dream that maybe we could make it. It was really a really cool moment for me. That's a great story. That's like El Tubi. He's helped a lot of young kids, little kids get signed or play baseball because he's a midget and he's a hell of a hitter and everything. He's got the whole package, but little guys can play if they got the right makeup and they're strong enough and tough enough to go through the rigors of playing baseball. Well, I mean, we're both proof of that. You know, it was always, at least when I was growing up, it was baseball is the one sport where you don't have to be ginormous to play. You know, football, you got to be a, a beast. The basketball, you got to be 6'6". Six, six. You know, right. you got to be 6'10". But back then, you could be a little guy. You could be a Joe Morgan or a Freddie Patek, or, you know, a little guy, a Glenn Hubbard, one of those guys, and still have a chance to play if you could do um, everything right, like like us little guys had to do. Right. Well, that's a good, good lesson. I mean, if the young kids are watching, I mean, just play baseball, but play three sports. I mean, don't get talked into playing just basketball year-round or football year-round, you know, lifting weights and stuff like that. Just, you know, play as many sports you can. You know, lacrosse is a big sport now, and it's usually during baseball season, but my two granddaughters play lacrosse, and it's a hell of a game. I mean, I thought I ran a lot when I played soccer, but they run up and down the field and across the field. But it's a good sport for, you know, high-end court, hand-eye coordination and also for speed and developing your legs and so forth. But there's a lot of things you can do besides just baseball to get yourself better in baseball is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think people uh, – I think, unfortunately, people think that you have to start focusing on one sport at an early age to be able to um, compete at a high level at that sport. And that's – I mean, there's just so many cases where that's been proven not to be true. I mean, Michael Jordan, you know, he, he didn't – he got cut from his basketball team in high school, his junior year in high school. I think that turned out all right. So it's not like you have to start playing baseball exclusively at 12 years old to be able to someday go and get a, you know, D1 scholarship. If you're a good enough athlete and you're talented enough, the scouts will find you. You'll find, you know, you'll get your opportunity. Yeah. Jeff, you're out there speaking a lot. And I, I, uh, in in the talks I give, I get some bizarre questions. I don't know how to answer sometimes. And uh, a couple of them are, now I'm, I'm, this is this should be the small guy network because I'm 5'10", 160 pound white guy just like you guys, and uh, I get asked when I get introduced because I've got the chance to play four years of college basketball, four years of college baseball, and, and three years of minor league baseball. And I, I walk in and I just look like a regular person. I look like I was the captain of the chess club. And the question I get asked by these kids is alarming in the sense they want to know. One kid asked me what my uh, launch angle was, and I said it was negative. I beat the ball into the ground, uh, but uh, they wanted to know if, uh, how often I went to my shooting coach for basketball, how often I went to my hitting coach and, and, and uh, my fielding coach. And they named all these coaches. Uh, how did I fit that in over the course of the week doing two sports? And uh, I, I kind of laughed. I was like, I, I, I never had a, those coaches. We didn't do that. And then the look on their face was amazing. It was like to them it was, well, how on earth did you learn how to shoot or hit or throw if you didn't have these guys around you all the time? And I wanted you to kind of talk to some of the things you're sharing with the kids. And, and if you're getting some of those questions as well, um, that kind of gave us a little, little glimpse into what the times are like now for these kids. Yeah. That's funny. I mean, I never had a lesson. I've never had a lesson in any sport, you know, and I play golf now. I've never had a golf lesson. Um, but we, that just, we didn't have those things. And now it's these kids got a pitching lesson one day, two hitting lessons a week. And it's just, you know, I blame the parents for the most part because the parents think these kids have to do these things to, to be able to compete at a high level, and it's just not the case. And all they're doing is is burning these poor kids out. Um, a lot of a lot of the stuff I talk about when I go out and talk is 
a lot of people want want to hear my story and um it's a pretty cool story I had a little kid from who grew up without a dad um in a family you know riddled with alcoholism and moved to a small town in Oklahoma ended up playing professional baseball so a lot of my story is of my speaking stuff is telling that story but I also talk about um, character development and leadership stuff where I think parents are really dropping the ball these days and and not holding their kids accountable and you know just talk to the kids about being a respectful person and treating people right and if they want to accomplish something in their life that don't listen to the people that tell them they can't that every time somebody tells you you can't do something just put it put that in your back pocket and keep it and and let that be the motivation you need to prove them wrong because if you do prove everybody wrong and and are able to accomplish your goals it's so rewarding at the end and that it, if you set your mind to it and are willing to put in the work and it doesn't work out you'll at least be able to look in the mirror and say you gave it, gave it everything you had and now you can get on with the next phase of your life well, that's a great message we we just had a young kid um, this is a, a women's basketball player we help kids with scholarships five foot five her dad will fight with me, say she's 5'7", but he and I played together in the independent leagues when they were popular. And um, the only two people in America, I believe, that thought that she could play power five basketball were me and her. And, you know, she was, she, you know, similar, she should be on this podcast. She's got that fight in her kid by the name of Schmidt. And um, I told her a similar, similar phrase. You know, she was, she got caught up to the point where she was proving so many, trying to prove so many people wrong she started fighting herself. And I said, how about this? How about you prove me and you right? Let's prove me and you right. Forget those other people. And then um, she signed uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, great, great. Uh, but I, I, I share that. That's I don't smile a ton. That was one of the first times I smiled. I almost shed a tear when I saw that kid sign because uh, so many people for so long told her she couldn't do it. And uh, just that little belief in yourself and hanging around the right people. That'll, that'll teach and hold you accountable, like you said. I love that well, message. I think, I think what you said, Jeff and, and Dave, is like, you know, you got to figure it out yourself. I mean, you got to be your own coach. Sometimes you get some hints here and there, but, uh, you know, we, we're we older. I'm not, you guys aren't as old as me, but I'm sure you did the same thing. You ride your bike five miles, get about 10 guys, go five on five. You couldn't hit the ball left field. You couldn't hit the right field. You know, you had to figure out how to hit the ball the other way. And certain things you had to do. Sometimes you had four guys on a team. But uh, you figured out how you had to do it. And uh, no one told you how to do it. You just figured it out yourself. And, you, you know, you remembered that skill and how you did it and how you had to do it that make you better as you get longer in, in age. So it's to me too many kids are to do it this way, do it that way. You know, to go to these camps, I guess, and the guy running the camp to say, oh, this, yeah, your kid's going to play in a big league someday. Keep coming, keep paying me and so forth. But uh, it's just the game should be fun. And we had a lot of fun playing you know, four and four, five on five, and riding our bikes five miles sometimes to get there. And some of the balls were taped up. Some of the bats had screws in them. But that was what – it was fun. Yeah, and we didn't – I mean, none of us uh, – I'm speaking for me, but I'm sure you're the same, Shake. Now, I always wanted to be a professional. I wanted to be a big leaguer, but I never really dreamed that it was possible. So we played, you know, to have fun, to be outside, you know, to compete with your – I always competed with my cousin. It was him and I playing wiffle ball every day. And, you know, we'd play wiffle ball, nerf ball, whatever we had, tennis ball, until we lost it or it broke. Right. <laughs> then we'd go beg our moms to buy us a new one so we could do the same thing the next day. And it's funny because the other day I mentioned something. I think it was yesterday I mentioned something on Twitter about uh, expected batting average that's based on the exit velocity and launch angle of the balls you hit. And, uh, I mentioned something about, you know, playing with right field close. When you only had a couple guys, you couldn't play the whole field, so you had to close one of the fields, and you had to learn to be able to direct the ball toward the field that was open. And, there, you know, it's almost like these people don't believe that you could actually do that. And I know that I did that. I know that, you know, when there was a hit and run situation, I would move off the plate to make the inside corner of the middle of the plate because I knew I could cover away. And I was had one goal, and that's to hit the ball through the four hole. And I could do that quite regularly. And, and the idea that, you know, that 
batting average is all based on luck to me is is just comical because I know some of the great hitters I saw during my career, Wade Boggs and, and Tony Gwynn, and, and those guys could hit the ball where they wanted. And don't tell me it's an accident. It's just all based on luck. That's a bunch of garbage. Well, another thing, too, we used to play Pepper all the time. I don't think anybody plays Pepper anymore. And uh, when I ran a minor for the Red Sox, you know, I was, like I said, field coordinator and director of player development. But first thing we did before practice, we played Pepper. And you'd learn how to control the head of the bat and hit the ball to the right side, hit the ball straight away, you know, hit the ball to the guy on the left. But that was like a miniature baseball game. And you got to touch. And uh, you just knew what you had to do to get your hands out, get your bottom hand extended so you can hit the ball the other way and stuff like that. But you learn how to do that by playing a little simple game of pepper. And a lot of times when I managed in the minor leagues, the field was wet, we go on the outfield and play extended pepper, just moving back a little farther. And they take like a more just like a half a swing, but, you know, swing the bat all the way through, but just don't swing it hard. But they learned how to control. It was like batting practice, but it was, it was you know, skill training, so to speak. Yeah, and you had to direct the ball. You didn't want to hit to the same guy over and over and over. So you had to hit if you had three guys fielding. You go right. all the way down the line, back down the line, back and forth. You couldn't hit a line drive because you hit a line drive. You got to give up the bat. So you try to get on top of the ball and hit it, you know, a one or two hopper to each guy. And that was the skill that we developed. And I did it in the minor leagues almost every single day before the game. I would use a fungo. Um, because it helped with my hand-eye coordination. I would use a fungo a lot of times playing pepper. So yeah. when I hear people talk about that it's all based on luck, that you have no control. Obviously, you have no control once the ball leaves your bat. I understand that part. But I'm hitting it to where I'm trying to hit it away from the defense. And you, I know you remember Reggie, Jeffers, Reggie Jefferson, the hit cat. That guy can yeah. hit. And he's the first guy I had ever heard of that talked about in batting practice. He tries to hit it away from where the guys would be playing in the game. Yeah. I never thought of that. And, you know, Reggie was a consistent 300 hitter every year. Well, I always told hitters, you know, you got to just give yourself a chance to get a hit. Have a good at-bat, hit the ball in the, you know, in the sweet spot, and redirect it different areas. I, mean, I always thought that when this shift came in, whoever shifted, they should put cones out there for these guys who, you know, hit against the shift. Just show them where the infielders are playing and the outfielders and try to hit it somewhere else. Just practice that. But, again, they get back to the launch angle and get back to the exit velocity. They'd rather hit a ball hard than get a base hit because they're graded on exit velocity. I mean, Joey Gallo, you know, he's like the, the best of all of them. He strikes out 220 times, maybe hits 30 home runs. But he swings and misses more than anybody. You think a little better toward the end of the year this year. But he was graded on his exit velocity and how far he hit the ball and his launch angle. And the launch angle is the worst thing that ever happened to a young player for sure, I think. I mean, even those good hitters like Hank Aaron, they sit on the top of the ball, they got backspin, they kind of tomahawk the ball. They didn't swing up at it. And Aaron Judge can because he's, you know, he's a monster. But uh, those other guys try to swing up, they're not making out too well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see the videos of those guys. You see like a Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron yeah. and Willie Mays. Those guys weren't trying to hit under the ball. They're hitting no. down on the ball, creating backspin. You know, they were basically line drive hitters who could hit home runs. They weren't exactly hitting fly balls like McGuire hit them, you know, and those those sky high. They were hitting linias 400 feet into the bleachers, not the high towering fly balls that you see Aaron Judge hit slice to right center now because he's, you know, a modern <clears throat> freak of nature. He can do things that, you know, most people can't do. And he's, you know. He's not right. a one percenter. He's a less than one percenter. And unfortunately, right. there's people out there teaching kids to hit like he hits. And good luck with that. Yeah. Well, to me, drive the ball through the infield. You hit the ball hard. Distance takes care of itself if you're strong enough or whatever. But, you know, hit line drives and ground balls through the infield. And you're going to make up pretty well. Do, good, do you guys end up asking this to both of you guys? Do you believe good hitters can can develop power later, but if you try to go after power early, it's much harder to become a good hitter? Well, I, what I think is, and I had the perfect example was Don Manley. Manley played for me in A-ball, right? He had about 360-something. Hit the ball, he was a left-hand hitter, hit the ball left center field, center field, and left field. He very rarely pulled the ball, but he hit, for average, he hit, I don't know, maybe hit 9, 10 home runs all year in 1980. I don't know for sure, but he was on base a lot, I know that. And... uh 
he told me when he got to the big leagues, Lou Pinella worked with him on getting backspin on the ball and being short and quicker to the ball. So now he hit home runs because the ball inside, he pulled it. He never really pulled the ball. But to me, if you're going to grade a young hitter, I get a hitter and hit the ball in the opposite field, you know, right-hand hitter, right center field, and so forth. He's staying on the ball. He's getting good bottom-hand extension. I think uh, Mo Vaughn, who you play with, Jeff, you know, he was great with the bottom-hand extension. Got him through, and his hand's actually in front of the head of the bat. That's why he drove the ball off that wall in left field. And those guys can do that. The bat's in the strike zone a long time. He's not flopping the bat, you know, rolling over the top hand, which flops the bat. And, you know, breaking ball hitters, they, they stay inside the ball, but – the bottom hand goes through, and the, the other hand lags a little bit, and it drops the head of the bat on the, on the ball. But that's to me, that's what hitting is all about. It's not, you know, hooking it and swinging as hard as you can and pulling everything. Right. I mean, you look at a couple guys, a couple examples I would use, Dave, or Fred McGriff. He wasn't really a, a home run hitter when he first came up, and he turned himself into one. And I mean, maybe even a better example is Palmero. Palmero was a, you know, fifteen to twenty homer guy who would drive the ball the other way, and he got to Arlington with that short right field and the jet stream, and he became more of a pull hitter. And he went to Hamden Yards with that short right field porch, and he started becoming more of a dead pull hitter, and he turned himself into a power hitter. But originally, he was a great hitter. The guy would hit, right. you know, over 300 every year and, you know, 30, 40 doubles every year. But he was able to, because he was so talented, turn himself in to a home run hitter. And you mentioned, uh, Shafe, you mentioned Mo Vaughn. And, I mean, Mo is an incredible hitter, great teammate, just an gr- all-around great guy. And it's funny that Mo Vaughn would ask me occasionally. He's like, what am I doing, Frito? And I was like, man, Mo, you're trying to pull him off the ball. You know, and, and which, as a left-handed power hitter in Fenway Park, <laughs> that, you know, that's a long way to right field. Um, I mean, you got to juice one to get it out of there. But, when Mo would struggle, it's because he got pull happy. And I said, Mo, you got that wall 320 feet away left, man. You could flick it off that wall. He would start staying back, driving the ball the other way, and that would get him locked in again. And then he'd turn into, you know, Mo Vaughn, the MVP, 145 RBIs hitting 340. Right. Well, the good hitters hit the ball all the way. The good RBI guys like uh, Manny Ramirez, who played with us in L.A., he hits the ball the other way in RBI situations. He doesn't try to hook it. And Mo, I mean, uh, Manny would hit like a fastball to right center field. A lot of times when he was, you, know, you knew he was going good, he hit foul ball over the first base dugout on the fastball. He's looking breaking ball, reacting to the fastball, but he was never out in front. He would never, you know, he'd pull some, you know, if you throw a slider in the strike zone with two strikes, he'd, he'd pound it because he's staying back and not out front looking to pull a, looking to pull a fastball, which would make a way out front on an off-speed pitch. But, you know, Don Manley, he played for me in 1980. Like I said, I told you before what he hit and everything. And Donnie and I became friends all through the minor leagues. I coached against him, managed against him. I was in Tidewater. He was in uh, Columbus. And then I'd, we'd go down to his house in New Jersey, and I'd go over to Yankee Stadium with him and throw to him in a, in a cage. And Donnie came up with that thing. You remember, he, his back foot, his left foot, it would face it toward the catcher. And I said, what the hell are you doing? He said, well, i got to slow my hips down. If I keep my hips closed, I'm not out front. I'm not rolling over. So, you know, he had technology or you know, a theory for that. And he probably screwed up a lot of hitters. A lot of young kids probably tried to do that, but that was his way of making an adjustment where he wouldn't pull off the ball. Cause the guys, the slump starts when you start pulling off and cheating inside and you can't react to the ball outside and you want to use one part of the field. Yeah. And, and, that, was, and then you mentioned Joey Gallo, that's him. <clears throat> and, and I just, I, it boggles my mind that you have some of these guys that are so big and strong that they can hit the ball out of any part of the ballpark. And yet they're still trying to pull everything and hitting for low average and striking out a lot. It's like a guy like me, the only way I could hit a home run was to pull it. It had to be left center that from left center to the foul pole. That's the only way I could possibly hit a home run, which I wasn't trying to do anyway. But I, if I hit a fly ball to right center, it was usually an out. But these guys drive it at any part of the ballpark. So I just don't understand why these guys haven't adjusted um, to be able to hit the ball the other way. And my only explanation is they're being told they don't have to. Right. Well, I think Billy Bean started that. Strikeout's just an out. If he had a ground ball, it's a double play. But a strikeout, like I said before, never took a bad hop. He put the ball in play. But the thing about hitting the ball the whole field, your you, bat stays in the strike zone a long time. But the guys who hook the ball, the bat's in and out, 
and that's where you strike out. Yeah, a lot of these messages are getting, we have a big audience of youth baseball globally, 74 countries now. And, um, it's, it's a, it's, it's our global pandemic, you know, it's, it's spreading out there like crazy with some of these misnomers about hitting. Um, when, when you're seeing these kids talking to these kids or even addressing it on social media, what are some cautionary tales that parents should pay attention to when they're getting, in, they're getting inundated with all these hitting gurus, pitching gurus, what, what, what should they pay attention to, to debunk it for themselves? Oh man, you know, there's, if they walk into the cage and the guy hands them a PVC pipe, I'd turn around <laughs> walking out the door, but it's, you know, it's a lot of, uh, I think, I think probably for parents, if they coach comes in and starts working with their kid and before they even see their kid hit, they start teaching them a certain swing, I would be worried because there's not one swing that works for everyone. And I, I think what we see now, or I see now a lot of, is swing coaches that are trying to teach everybody to swing the same. And everybody needs to hit the ball in the air. Um, and that's, for me, that's just a joke. And like Shave said, line drives all over the field. Hard ground ball is better than a weak fly ball every single time. And this, you know, when I see these instructors, and the first move they do is to, is to raise that front shoulder, front elbow, and drop that um, back elbow, and, and the bat goes backwards. To me, that's a red flag because that's the exact opposite of what the way I learned how to hit. And I see everybody doing that now where they're teaching that lift the ball and create this, uh, they call it barrel depth. And all barrel depth is is creating a long groove swing. And that's the opposite of what we were taught to do, Shafe. We should be short, quick, knob to the ball like Tony Gwynn. Go watch some Tony Gwynn videos if you want to simplify it. Knob to the ball, you know, and, and start hands high, knob to the ball, down through the ball, and finish high. And that's so many guys that I played with and played against all preach the same thing, but yet the internet hitting gurus are all teaching the opposite of that. Well, to me, there's four things. You know, you got to get a good pitch. You got to watch the ball. Be short and quick to the ball. And uh, it all starts with your front arm. I mean, when you start pushing your arm back and you start your launch angle behind your back, that becomes a long swing. And the good, good hitters, you have to wait so you see the ball in the air. You got to wait, you know, hopefully you can read the spin if you're good enough eyes. But when you start having a long swing, you got to commit sooner. And when you have a long swing or, you know, launch angle, you got a long swing, you swing it up, it's tough. I mean, we was told when I was a kid, you're going to chop a tree down, you can swing down at it. I can swing up at it. But the launch angle, like I said, is the worst thing ever happened, especially when you start the launch angle behind your back and behind your body and swing straight up. And uh, nothing good can happen because you got to commit yourself too soon and you got a long swing. And like I said, a short front arm gets out in front, it makes the swing a lot shorter and you can wait longer. You can see the ball longer. That's why you got to wait. But anyway, there's a lot of things to it, but it makes me sick watching some of these guys teaching this and talking about launch angle and exit velocity. Exit velocity will come with a short, quick swing with some kind of hand strength. I agree. I like that. Well, uh, Bob, we kept Jeff almost an hour here today. We're excited to have him back. I know you've been traveling quite a bit um, with, with these speeches. I'm glad you're getting out there. The kids need to hear you. Your story's inspirational, but the messaging, the space between the notes – is where I hope these people are grabbing on you about the, the, the nuances of the game. The, as we started the show, we talked about makeup, and I think that's getting lost nowadays with scouting reports. They can't tell makeup anymore. But um, how do you want to leave the audience, Jeff? Any, any messages you want to leave the kids with, the parents, the players that are listening? Because you have a great following. No, I would just say, um, Dave, that, uh, and I appreciate you guys having me on here today, is that uh, you know, parents, I would stress to um, – let your kids have fun. Let their kids enjoy their childhoods. Um, let's not uh, turn sports into a job for them or they won't want to play it any longer. Let them go out, chase whatever sport it is that they love. Let them play that sport. Don't make them play baseball if they don't like it. Let them, play, let them be kids. It's their life. Let's not use uh, your failures um, to push them in a direction you want them to go. Let them choose. And let them dedicate themselves and work to be the best they can be at whatever sport 
it is they want to play. And if they don't want to play sports, let them do whatever it is they want to do. If they want to be in the band, if they want to, you know, whatever they want to do in their life, they should have the freedom to choose and to go chase their dreams. And if it is sports, encourage them to work as hard as they can, but make them make the choices to work at it. Don't push them. I love that. Shafe, how about yourself? How do you want to leave the audience today there? You've got a great following out there now. A lot of coaches following your show, college, high school coaches. Any message you can leave them with? I think what Jeff said, you know, you got to have fun. I mean, like I said many times, to get better, you got to work at it. If you don't work at it, you're going to get worse. You're not going to stay the same. So if you have fun doing it, you're going to work at it a lot. I mean, I used to throw balls off a wall and feel them because it was fun for me feeling the ground balls. And I worked at it. I went to UConn in the field house. I threw a ball off one wall and pretended to make a double play off another wall. So I created, created like uh, quick hands and watched the ball into my glove and stuff like that. But I had fun doing that, and that's why I think I improved as an infielder. But, again, like Jeff said, don't put pressure on a kid. If he doesn't like to play, he doesn't like to play. But if he likes to play, he'll play a lot and he'll get better. Well, that's good. No, I think the people got a lot of good tips here. I, I jotted two things down. As I'm doing this show from my back porch. Tanner now is emulating the Don Mattingly toe thing, Bob. So he's got the toe <laughs> point backwards now working out. Cause I kept looking at him like, what are you doing? And he's like, Mattingly. I said, okay. So he, he was listening to us to do this. So he's got the Mattingly great point. I like about the third base play too, Jeff, it wasn't comfortable for you, but that lesson about Bob, you said it too, about watching the runner down the line. I think a lot of kids do that and that ball tails naturally. So lots of good tidbits for our audience. They great stories and two great baseball men. I hope our audience appreciates that. Uh, 60,000 of you guys out there, make sure you, you know what to do. Five stars, write some nice comments down here for the show. We're going to have she gone podcast back next week on the network. Jeff, we're gr- glad to have you back. You bring so much to, to what we're trying to do. And you were there at the beginning and, and helped us get this thing rolling. So hope we did you proud here. 3000 last year, we're up to 60,000 now and, um, keep out there preaching, preaching the faith, uh, to blackout coffee up until this Friday. Now, uh, we have 20% off. Use David, all capitals, with the number 20 afterwards. You'll get your free, you get your 20% off at checkout. After this Friday, we have actually the, the discount doesn't go away, but it's going to get spread out to all of our podcasters. So our podcast has done so well that each of our hosts is now uh, official sponsors for Blackout Coffee. So congratulations to you, Bob, on that. Uh, done real well. And Blackout wants to reward you. I guess they don't want to reward me now. They're going to push it, push it to you. You're the, you're the guy with the knowledge. So yeah, that's right. I told them anyway. <laughs> And uh, make sure you use that stocking stuffer. I mentioned Ted Kubiak's books in the beginning of the show. If you want a good gift for your kids, great stocking stuffer books for them. Two good uh, baseball books, one about the state of our game, one about fielding. So, uh, guys, great show today. Appreciate the, the conversation. I know our audience is going to get a great uh, great deal from it. And glad to have you back, Frito. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's great great catching up with you, Shafe. And I look forward to uh, seeing you in person. Uh, you know, I'm on the East Coast now, Shafe. I'm in Maryland. So I'm oh, yeah. far away. I moved here about three weeks ago, and uh, it's cold here, man. Uh, I've been cold for a month, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not too far away. We'll come down to Florida. It's a little cool today, but it's going to warm up again tomorrow. But Florida's the best. I'm in Fort Myers. It's awesome down here. I'll I'll be there. I'll be there in three weeks. Oh, you mean what fantasy camp? Yep, I'm going to my first ever Red Sox fantasy camp. Okay, I'll be over there because Flash is going to be over there. Flash Gordon. Yeah. He was, on, he was on my show, but no, I'll come, I'll, I'll come over and see you. I'm about five miles away, less than that, maybe. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. It's uh, January 14th through 21st. Trot got me involved, so I'm really looking forward to it. I'm good. Nice. Are you, are you ready to roll? Body's ready to go? I got to start taking some BP, but I think I'll be all right. You'll be good. You'll be good. It's like riding a bike. It's like riding a bike. All right, guys, thanks so much for the show. We gave you a good hour today, the audience, and uh, we'll see you back next week with Touch Em All with Bob Schaefer episode 363 and we'll bring you we'll let you know the timing of the uh she gone podcast next week as we get closer to the weekend so thanks a lot guys thank you thanks buddy
take it to the floor.